the impact is varied because on one hand, uh, the stronger emerging markets are suffering, but they're surviving, they're resilient. But for the weaker uh, emerging market or the weaker country, the low-income countries, it is, goes all the way from dire to tr- truly catastrophic. So we really need to maybe revise that that label of emerging markets. What you're saying is that there's really a divergence. If they have more commodity um, self-sufficiency, if they have more agricultural self-sufficiency or other skills or talents, then they're going to survive. But the others that have to import quite a bit of food and energy, for example, they're going to be really in a horrible predicament. Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, September 28, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest for today, for our 38th episode of The Hale Report, is Professor Kareem Pakraven, who is speaking to us from Chicago while I happen to be in Cincinnati today. Kareem, welcome to The Hale Report. Thank you very much. Glad to be there. Uh, Let me tell you a bit about our guest, Kareem Pakraven. He's currently an adjunct faculty at the Department of Economics at DePaul University in Chicago after retiring from full-time teaching at DePaul, where he has been a visiting associate professor at finance from 2008 to 2016. Prior to that, Kareem had a 25-year career in global banking and finance with major U.S. banks, focusing on global financial issues, country risk management, and later foreign exchange and emerging markets advisory. Since retiring from DePaul, I'm not sure if this would qualify as retiring. He's also taught at Loyola University's Quinlan School of Business and is currently an assistant professor at the Strayer College of Business. He also works as a private consultant. Kareem holds a BS in economics from the University of Geneva, one of my favorite cities, um, and a Master of Science in Econometrics and Mathematical Economics from the London School of Economics and a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Kareem, you might know that I always ask my guests at the beginning how they became interested in the subject that became their life's work. Can you share that with us? I'd I'd love to know, actually. We've known each other a long time, but I've never asked you that question. Well, it's a combination of my personal interest and sort of random meeting random people, as usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, My PhD was about oil and the oil industry. And it was natural for me to sort of start dealing with the Middle East. And when I came to America uh, from Iran, I met the head of country risk management at what was known as the First National Bank of Chicago. And he offered me a position as a Middle East analyst in his country risk department. That was in 1983. And so I stayed on through different mergers. Uh, and basically, I built the uh, country risk management 
department after Alan Stoga left to actually work for Kissinger. And uh, so by after, after several mergers, basically I, I was the head of the uh, country's management. And of course, country risk, the science or the art of country risk had gone through a lot of iterations, starting from the debt crisis of the 1980s, all the way to the Asian crisis, and then uh, the various uh, developments and the globalization. So you were on the front lines of all of that. Exactly, throughout. exactly. Right, exactly. And it was uh, very interesting and sometimes quite thrilling. And uh, not just because of the subject matter, but because you got to interact with a lot of very interesting and knowledgeable, knowledgeable people, uh, both uh, in the U.S., Europe, and in the countries we visited. And just as this was gr- ramping up as well, the period of exactly. time is, was an incredible time to be doing that. Exactly. And then at the last merger uh, with J.P. Morgan, uh, I was offered a position to in foreign exchange advisory and emerging markets, which I held till I basically retired from banking in 1987. I mean, I'm sorry, 2007. So, uh, and since then, uh, I did a lot of writing about the financial issues, international financial issues, about uh, globalization of finance, about uh, banking, and uh, post-2008. So it has been uh, a lifelong uh, passion for me, and it happened to coincide with my work, So, which was very lucky for me. And uh, also, um, I hope you don't mind if uh, if I... Uh bring some current events into our discussion. But you sure. were born in Iran, and right. a place where I lived as well, and uh, uh, have great fondness for. And I'm wondering what you feel about what's going on in Iran today. What is the political situation? And how do you see the economic situation? Well, I think the political situation is uh, fairly volatile, but unclear. I mean, that's not a very interesting thing to say. But that's that's a reality. People have been uh, comparing it to 1979, uh, but there are some major differences and a couple of uh, common points. The major difference was at the time the revolutionary forces were organized. They had the network of mosques. They had the support of a left wing group. They had the implicit and explicit support of the West. A lot of support in the media, and also the Shah. Uh, despite all his faults, was not willing to uh, actually have a bloodbath to stay in power. Uh, right? But it also started with a small thing. And here is the same thing. We start with a small thing. That's a, that's that a the, similarity. Yeah. That's a similarity. But it stops here in the sense that uh, the uh, regime is determined to stay in power. Uh, I will quote former President Rapsanjani, who said that we're not like the Shah, we're not afraid of a nosebleed, we'll do whatever is required to stay in power. So the question is, who will, who will tire first? And the other thing which people should realize is that this being the Middle East, uh, the perception of Western support is very important. That played a role in uh, 1979 to the point where the Shah was convinced that the Americans and the Europeans wanted to get rid of him. Was he right? Well, I mean... Basically, it was transactional. Mm-hmm. The Europeans and Americans supported him until they, they realized that uh, they didn't have to support him, and they they made deals with the with the revolutionary regime, which of course fell apart. 
So, um, you know, you look at the courage of the Iranian people and the sacrifice they're doing right now, uh, they are forcing the regime to back off to a certain extent. I just read in Financial Times today that the so-called morality police has been pu- pushed back, pulled back. I would, ho- I would imagine, I would hope so, that they wouldn't double yeah, up. But at, mm. at the same time, they're bombing, you know, Kurdish villages and towns. Right. So, um, and they're, the force degrees are stretched thin. So maybe this time is different. Uh, well, so to be decided, right? It's still in, right. this is still in play. Now, what is the current inflation situation? I've heard from a lot of my Iranian friends that it's very dire, that inflation right. is out of control and it's difficult to buy food and to exist. Right. Basically, uh, inflation is anything 80 to 100%. And the middle class has been wiped out. There are no jobs. That's another powerful incentive to, for young people to riot. Right. Right, exactly. Well, we'll see how how that uh, how that unfolds, and I hope in a in a good way. I think the Iranian people have been suffering for quite some time. It would be good to see uh, right, an absolutely. end to that. Do you think sanctions? I wanted to ask you too, as a theoretician, do you think sanctions, economic sanctions, are a useful tool? Well, uh, I don't think so. Uh, they are used in lieu of. Uh, other things. Uh, so the way the, the sanctions, the way they've set up are not really useful. It uh, puts a cost to the regime. But uh, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that uh, Fidel Castro saying that thanks, thank God for the sanctions. If the U.S. had not put sanctions on Cuba, I would ask them to put sanctions on Cuba. The more sanctions they put, the better off I am because I can control things. Just putting sanctions doesn't really work. What would work, however, would be if the government put sanctions on specifically on the political leadership, just the way they're done with Putin and his clique. So if you start uh, blocking uh, assets that the regime leaders and the military leaders have over, over abroad. And their families. Uh, and their families, that will uh, send a message. Okay. So there's some, if judiciously applied, they can have an effect. That's right. Well, I wanted to thank you as well for writing a wonderful three-part series for EconView, which you can find on our website. I would highly recommend reading it about emerging markets. And what you say is that emerging markets are at a kind of flashpoint due to the reaction partly of central banks around the world to inflation, raising interest rates. Um, starting off with your first article, The Past is Prologue, um, you describe the parallels between the debt crisis of the 80s, which you were, as, I, as we talked about, you were on the front lines and now. And as we struggle with currency devaluations in Asia and Europe, are there also parallels to the Asian financial crisis of 1997? How do you draw those historical links to what's well, going uh, on today? Well, to go back to my career at Country Risk, the first job I had was to deal with the Moroccan restructuring in mm. uh, early 1983. The parallels are clear in the sense that uh, what we had, we had a period in the 1970s of easy money, uh, surging petrodollars. Uh, the banks helped to recycle the petrodollars into this newfangled thing called, called syndicated loans. 
And uh, then uh, we had raging inflation, a uh, international crisis with Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war. And then uh, comes uh, Paul Volcker, uh, slams on the brakes, uh, causes interest rates, I don't know if people remember, and up to 18%, almost 19%, uh, caused a major uh, recession in the United States, actually two recessions, and that killed inflation. That also forced the uh, so-called less developed countries, the LDCs, uh, into bankruptcy, and they uh, and a decade of restructuring and re-restructuring and re-rescheduling until eventually uh, the Brady bonds came and took care of the of the problem. Uh, the key point was that the debtors at the time were the less developed countries, but the creditors were the governments and the major banks, the major Western and Japanese banks. Um, in 1997, the Asian crisis was basically a domestic banking crisis where uh, the bank, the banks in this uh, Asian countries had accumulated significant amount of debts and they were unable to repay. And there was a run on the currency and there was a cascade of devaluation starting with the Thai baht, uh, the Malaysian ringgit, the Indonesian uh, rupiah, and uh, even countries like uh, South Korea, uh, which were the strongest countries, uh, basically fell. And then there was a rest- was restructuring between banks. Of course, there was a uh, infusion of funds by the IMF, the World Bank, and the usual uh, sort of uh, programs imposed on the countries, but basically it was a different different animal. Now, after that, the situation changed significantly. Uh, you had a number of different different issues. Uh, first of all, the we were in the middle of uh, financial globalization, and uh, now these LDCs, now called emerging markets, had a lot more access to different forms of capital. Uh, secondly, uh, they uh, were able to accumulate significant amount of reserves. Exactly. So they had a very strong, very strong cushion. Uh, the policy frameworks were more robust. Um, the uh, sort of uh, so-called Washington consensus uh, for, uh, forced a number of reforms, market reforms in these countries, made them more flexible and resilient. And uh, they also benefited from uh, a choice of much more uh, uh, diverse instruments in which they could borrow. And also, there was much more borrowing in local currency uh, or issuing security local currency. Instead of dollar-denominated debt. That's right, or foreign currency denominated. And also, uh, the corporate sectors in these countries became big borrowers too. So there was a much more flexible and diverse uh, financial environment. It was distributed. The risk was more distributed. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So uh, the... Parallels today are a little bit on the situation. We have a global economic slowdown. We have high inflation. We have a monetary tightening by the major central banks and very strong dollars. And uh, that has pushed some of the poorer countries, the lower income countries, to the brink of default. So in your second piece, you say that the challenges that emerging markets face today are truly unprecedented. 
And you cite some, so I'd love to dig into that list that you just gave, because I think it's, it's really important. Um, do you think that the effect of a sustained higher interest rate policy, monetary tightening by developed markets is going to have a direct effect on these emerging markets in spite of the fact that they have more uh, foreign reserves, in spite of the fact that the risk has become diversified. Um, why, why is it unprecedented? Will it be even worse, perhaps? Well, I think we should start with the, with the dollar. Uh, basically, I think one mantra right now is that the Fed's gain is the emerging market's pain. Exactly, right. The yeah. fact that the uh, the fact that the Fed has tightened monetary policy has had two impacts. In fact, the Fed has done two things. People have been focusing on interest rate hikes, but in fact, the Fed also started a quantitative tightening. The Fed balance sheet had gone up to over $8 trillion, and now they're cutting it back at the roughly at a speed of $100 billion a month. Uh, so, not only there's less liquidity, but it's more expensive. The second factor is that uh, as the Fed has tightened monetary policy and U.S. interest rates have gone up, the dollar has soared. The dollar has soared means other currencies have been devaluing and depreciating very rapidly, which means that the burden of debt service for emerging markets has increased significantly. And also, uh, thirdly, uh, a weaker local currency means that these countries are importing more inflation, which is forcing their central banks to tighten. So the economic operators in these countries are facing higher external debt service, higher interest rates, uh, and higher domestic interest rates. And so the impact is varied because on one hand, uh, the stronger emerging markets are suffering, but they're surviving. They're resilient. But for the weaker uh, emerging market or the weaker countries, the low-income countries, it is, goes all the way from dire to tr truly catastrophic. So we really need to maybe revise that, that label of emerging markets. What you're saying is that there's really a divergence. If they have more commodity um, self-sufficiency, if they have more agricultural self-sufficiency, or other skills or talents, then they're going to survive. But the others that have to import quite a bit of food and energy, for example, they're going to be really in a horrible predicament. Well, basically, I think uh, you're right. The uh, term emerging market or term BRICS and so on, we're all sort of pretty broad. But if we look at the what the uh, IMF calls emerging markets developing countries or emerging market low-income countries, you've got emerging markets, uh, and even emerging markets are divided into groups. They are the uh, commodity exporters, and especially the petro states, and they're doing fantastically well. I mean, because uh, energy prices are high, right? Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, I just saw a number that the uh, Gulf countries are going to have approximately five, three and a half trillion dollars in the next five years. Wow. In terms of oil revenues. That's real uh, money. <laughs> that's real money. Mm -hmm. Then you've got this, your standard emerging markets, which are middle income countries with fairly diversified economies, 
okay monetary policy, fiscal policies, reserves, the Turkeys, the Brazils, um, South Africa, and, and Indonesia, and so on and so forth. Even Indonesia is somewhere in between. Uh, and those countries are going to face difficulties, but we're not going to see a debt crisis. And then you've got the low-income countries, basically uh, African countries, a couple in Central America, uh, maybe a couple in Asia, where they are, they have very little access to capital markets in general. They Sri depend Lanka, on, mm-hmm, for example. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, that's right. They depend on, uh, they depend on uh, official finance. They have very low reserves and they have a lot of domestic policy vulnerabilities. And with the Ukraine war and the soaring food prices, some of them are at the point where it'd be difficult to feed their populations. So at that point, the choice is between feeding your population or paying those damn foreigners. Yes, which they're going to choose. Exactly. Any politician exactly. will will know the answer to that, right? Right, exactly. So um, if you look at the numbers themselves, they're not terrible. It's just the fact that uh, you are suddenly in a, in a dire situation. I was reading a quotation from... Uh, the book, The Sun Also Rises by uh, Hemingway. And they asked him, uh, how did you go bankrupt? He said, uh, uh, slowly at first and then suddenly. Right. And this is the thing. There is this mm -hmm. tipping point. Now, what is happening is that, of course, there are two things happening. First of all, a lot of the money they were getting was from China. China has become the biggest financier of these countries. And they themselves are a so-called emerging economy. Yeah, but Lending then to these, a, right. They're in a third category, really. Exactly. Their category is a emerging. Sui generis. <laughs> that's right. The emerging market, but they're the biggest manufacturer in the world. And they have huge, huge reserves. So that's one thing is uh, they owe a lot of money to China. And the other thing is that the IMF and World Bank and others have put together a number of, of programs. The first thing they did is they... Uh, the G20 basically agreed to suspend debt service during the pandemic. That period is going to end at the end of this year. The second thing is they put together a $650 billion uh, fund at the IMF to help these countries, which, interestingly enough, has not really been touched. The IMF has now programs with Zambia. It is discussing programs with Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Lebanon, uh, which are at various stages of uh, catastrophe. And uh, so there will be some money forthcoming. The Chinese so far have uh, done some bilateral restructurings, but they have kept away from the global official creditors sort of club, the so-called Paris club. So money, their money is forthcoming. And I think that there will be uh, there will be help on the way. But from a generic point of view, we don't have a debt crisis. What we have is serious problems in uh, most emerging markets and then a very dire situation, but with enough finance in the world to be able to deal with that. The question is whether these po uh, countries are politically able to deal with the, uh, another IMF program and with the fallout all of these problems, 
Uh, and finally, I think that, again, uh, just like in the old uh, Monty Python, where the Spanish Inquisition arrived unexpectedly, there'll be a lot of more unexpected shocks. Well, you know, with uh, China, I went to a World Bank meeting uh, last year, and what they explained is that the reason that these countries didn't take advantage, more advantage, especially the poorest of the poor countries, of this debt relief program uh, called the IDISS or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Distress DISS, that's right. Yeah. Right. Um, that the reason they didn't take place is that um, they also had outstanding loans to China or Chinese private companies. And if they re somehow, if they restructured any of their debt to anybody, it would cause cancellation of their Chinese debt, immediate cancellation of their Chinese debt, and they would be forced to repay. So well, I, I think mean, China's playing a role there too. Right. What, I mean, there's this concept in banking called acceleration. And so if you settle, if you default on one, uh, then everybody else is supposed to be able pilot <laughs> and ask for the money back. Yeah, but that's, yeah, but that's really an excuse. I think uh, the point is that the Chinese are very carefully, basically tiptoeing into joining the, the Paris club, but they, uh, they don't want, to, they want to be seen in a category of their own because basically Chinese loans have a very different uh, structure and they come without any, conditions. So the Chinese want to be the good guys and let the IMF and the others be the bad guys. I see. <laughs> well, given also China's current economic um, situation, the COVID, the zero COVID policy is continuing. It seems that their growth has slowed quite a bit. Um, and what kind of effect will China have on these emerging markets then as well? And do you foresee that we will, as a result of all the factors that you've been talking about, do you believe that there will be a global recession or do you think we'll be able to restructure and we'll be able to dodge a bullet here? Well, I think that uh, the pr problem of Chinese slowdown is twofold. One is it's going to reduce, of course, demand for the export of these countries and hurt them. On the other hand, it's going to allow commodity prices and energy prices to maybe be lower than the otherwise. That would be uh, would be positive, uh, positive. But in taken in the context of a greater economic nationalism and basically basically pulling inward by the West and by the United States, uh, you're going to see less trade anyway. So trade is no longer going to be the savior. Uh, on the other hand, it might be less important. Uh, and I think that uh, China will have an impact directly, mostly on countries around it, on the, uh, in, in East Asia, but less of an impact on the rest of the world. More importantly is the potential for a recession in the United States and in Europe. Uh, the only upside to a recession in Europe and the United States is it's going to keep uh, energy prices low and commodity prices lower, which will be helped and maybe will bring inflation down. Um, well, I think that in the United, in Europe, it's pretty uh, clear that we will have a recession. It started in the UK already, uh, with, but that recession might will be driven, I would say, mostly by uh, 
the problems coming from Russia and energy and the soaring energy prices. In the United States, uh, I think it's a 50-50. We might talk ourselves into a recession, but uh, it's possible that after the next 75 basis point rate increase by the Fed, that they will maybe you know uh, pause and uh, take their breath and see see what's happening. Because one factor the Fed has to consider is that a big chunk of the inflation is not demand driven; it's supply driven, and we're still uh, suffering from supply chain disruptions and labor shortages and so on and so forth. My personal opinion is they went too far too fast, maybe trying to emulate Volcker, um, but uh, without a plaza accord. That's to, right. Uh, too far. Well, yeah. too far, too fast and too late. And too late. Yeah. So what do you, <laughs> that's, you can't make up for it, it, it seems. And in fact, today, um, I don't know if you've seen the Bank of England resumed QE, quantitative easing. That's right. Because of the free fall of the pound that they were forced. And you wonder if other central banks... Well, Japan has been intervening. China's intervening. I think they're going to all fall in line. Right, absolutely. Well, the question is, is it trust or truce? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Half people say trust, half people say truce. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Well, you know, as you're describing the situation and and. I agree with you. It seems that trade is not the answer anymore. They're political. They're, the trade has become so politicized. The only way to get out of uh, debt is by growth, by increasing your revenue so you can pay the debt. If not from trade, where will growth come from? Well, at this stage, it's, it's hard to see. Exactly because right. pretty much mm-hmm. every factor, every headwind you can imagine, uh, high interest rates, um, generally uh, lockdowns in China and uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, basically, all uh, these are pushing against uh, a renewal of growth. And I think in the U.S. we might be lucky and have a mild recession and a recovery. But uh, if the war in Ukraine is here into 2023, 2024, and that's going to that's going to change the, equ- the equation. And if China continues lockdowns as well, but what if that reverse happens? China suddenly opens up and is rejuvenated, um, and also the war somehow mercifully comes to an end between Ukraine and Russia. What would then happen? Would do you think that that growth would restart? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, that's certainly if you take away some of the, the these major impediments that would go back to a period of a period of growth. But so it could then, happen slowly and then yeah. all of a sudden, as you exactly. said. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, if you want to talk about factors underlying uh, long-term growth, you could talk about uh, climate change uh, and the fact that uh, that's taken seriously, that in this country we've start, made the first investments in uh combating climate change. And so the classical source of growth are innovation, more resources, uh, and more people. Demographics. So I think, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think uh, we will have 
that many more people in many countries, except through immigration. Uh, but certainly there is a huge upside to innovation right now uh, that is tied to climate change. And technology in general. Yeah, technology in general, exactly. One of uh, my previous podcast guests, uh, Rick Katz, uh, who follows the Japanese economy, feels that Japan is potentially on the edge of a rejuvenation in its in, in innovation landscape and that they will have a lot of innovation coming in various fields that has been waiting to happen for some time. And now that would be a positive thing for the world because right, Japan's right. the third largest economy. People right. think of it as a small island, but it's it's very consequential. And that assumes no more no other shocks, Kareem, as well, that there's That's no right. invasion of Taiwan, right? Yeah, that's one thing. Also, uh, it uh, I think the downside to the global environment is the develop, uh, development of these different blocks, the Chinese block, the Shanghai block, coordination, right, right, and then cooperation, the, and then the, that's right. Then the Western Hemisphere block, Western Hemisphere plus Europe, and if we start moving towards deglobalizing and towards uh, the situation of competing blocks, that I think would be a damper on, on global growth. Um, you know, uh, Bob Gordon at Northwestern, um, uh, we had a conversation uh, here in Chicago and we spoke with um, uh, a Chinese economics expert, uh, Lauren Brandt from University of Toronto. But basically their conclusion was that much of the global growth that we experienced in the early 2000s, especially before the global financial crisis, came from increases in productivity in the United States due to offloading unproductive activity to China. And so there was a wonderful period, but it wasn't really based on innovation. It was based on productivity improvements. And will we see something comparable to that in terms of a technological advancement that we haven't even imagined yet? Well, uh, that, that is a hope. But I think, again, uh, climate change could be one of the one of the great leaders, and a necessary thing to do as well. Right, absolutely right. right. Okay, so um, in your the last article that you wrote, um, you said that we're either headed to another debt crisis or a resolution. How will we know where we're headed? What will the, what are you looking for in terms of sign uh, signs, and what is your prediction? Well, I think that uh, there are two dimensions to uh, analyzing uh, this kind of risk situation. One is resilience, and the second one is sustainability. And when we're looking at countries in the context of country risk, we basically spend a lot of time looking at the structure of how they finance themselves externally. So we looked at their uh, external balances, balances, the current accounts and the balance of payments, and spend a lot of time looking at the, trying to make predictions about the different items there. So what I think, uh, what, you, what you look at is, first of all, is uh, the external uh, uh, situation of the country sustainable? For example, if they have surpluses, of course, that is very nice. If they have, uh, on the other, if they have deficits, are the deficits small enough to be financed without too much uh, pain? And also uh, looking at 
indicators like debt to GDP, debt uh, uh, to exports, uh, debt service to exports, uh, this kind of indicators that can give us an advance uh, notice or uh, advance signals about the direction we're, we're going in. And then we analyze the main vulnerabilities of the country. Uh, look at their main exports. We look at the export prices, at the projections. And then we also look at uh, things that are more intangible, the level of confidence within the, uh, within the country. Even a country with large surpluses can have a crisis if a lot of capital is exported illegally or illegally. So that's a, that is a starting point. And then from there, you sort of back off into policies. And are the policies sustainable? Are they supporting a, uh, a, a stable situation? So you, we will get a lot of signals from major individual countries. Uh, the other thing is that if we see one major country getting into serious uh, external problem, like a country like Turkey, for example, that then that leads to a general withdrawal of confidence of emerging markets. So contagion effect is what you're the, talking the, about. The, the contagion effect, exactly. And then um, things have made it a little bit more complicated because there are so many different sources of capital right now and so many different instruments. Do you feel that this is all tracked? It does, is there one institution that really, the World Bank, the IMF, that really knows what's going on and is watching these factors? Well, of course, there's IMF and the World Bank, and then there are also the more private uh, other groups like uh, Institute of International Finance, which is a, a think tank for the banks, a place like the Peterson Institute. So and there's a lot of people looking at things right now. Uh, the question is, are they looking at the right thing? Right. And do they, yeah, do they know that for sure? So based on that, you know, there's been a lot of investment um, by uh, Western banks and investors into emerging markets. At this point, um, I don't know if you have any figures for that or what kind of, how that would, if everybody lost their money that they'd invested in emerging markets, what the impact would be, and what steps could investors take to de-risk their positions? You know, how would you advise somebody? Well, I think that uh, emerging market exposure for the major banks is not that great relative to their balance sheets. So they probably could deal with that. Um since 2008, of course, also, the banks have accumulated a lot of capital. Uh, the other day, uh, Jamie Dimon was complaining about it, at, I think, at, in Congress. Always. Saying, How much more capital do you want us to have? Well, you know, say, much more. Keep, keep on piling it on. So the banks would be okay. Uh, that, is, that is not really, a, that's not going to be a real issue for them. Uh, what they're going to do is, um, they're just going to sort of, uh, if they feel their risks are higher, they're just going to let their exposure gradually go down, uh, or sometimes maybe a little bit, be a little bit more more proactive. I mean, I remember uh, in the heydays of the Argentine crisis when uh, I was uh, running country risk, 
we had to make a decision to uh, about Argentina, and we basically uh, pulled out our exposure uh, within months. Actually, within weeks. Well, it depends what it is. I mean, short term is easy. So I think the only uh, the only uh, thing they can do is just to sort of reduce their exposure to uh, to uh, to these countries, if if needed. I wouldn't recommend it, but. They, yeah, but uh, so if we if the, we're buffeted by a strong dollar and basically a liquidity crisis, a, a, a growing liquidity crisis, what's what steps should governments take? What can they do to lessen the impact of this? Well, I think for one thing, they uh, should uh, put their internal houses in order. It might be difficult. I mean, if you're a, a poor African country or Sri Lanka uh, with a major debt crisis, it might be difficult. But if uh, you're a, you've got some some cushion, you have to follow a policy. Uh, you have to follow a policy of reducing your deficits, and at the same time, not uh, trying not to kill growth. And also, the issue we have in this country is to uh, protect, you know, the more vulnerable parts of your population. Um, other than that, you can look at ways to uh, to restructure restructure your debt or diversify your uh, your debt. The issue there in a lot of countries is that the government has much less power than before because right now a lot of the exposure is with private sector, with corporates and local corporates, local banks, and the government cannot tell them what to do. So it's really those corporates themselves who have to uh, see how they can uh, restructure their balance sheets in order to avoid that. I mean, the classical example was when uh, in Indonesia in 1997 uh, financial crisis, where the rupiah uh, dropped by 80%, suddenly the balance sheets were shot. And there's not not much they they could be doing. Uh, in the case where they are, uh, the markets are developed enough to have some uh, sort of hedging instruments, then of course they can restructure the balance sheets by uh, doing some hedging. But the, the, uh, to quote again Jamie Dimon, basically you want to have fortress balance sheets. So the situation is complicated by the fact that it's no longer government only; it's governments, corporates, banks, and they and they all uh, have uh, different interests. Lots of different stakeholders. Right, make exactly. Make it more and complicated. Then, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, there's a lot of capital sloshing around. I mean, you've got all the, uh, you have all the sovereign funds looking for places to put their money. So if you're a private company in an emerging market, you can try to access that kind of capital. Well, in 2008, the central banks got together and they coordinated. So we avoided the worst uh, uh, that could have happened during that right. time. Um, but uh, now, uh, you know, it, it sounds like we're in for a rough ride uh, yes. in the emerging markets and also uh, to lesser extent in developing markets, but still it won't be easy there, especially in Europe. How do you see a coordination of all of these efforts taking place? What would you, if you were president... What would you, who would you pull together and which institutions need to get together, 
probably yesterday, right? To, right. to start to begin this, especially in view of the humanitarian impact that this, that this could have. Right. Well, first of all, uh, obviously, central banks should maybe uh, get their act together and then uh, basically uh, consult with each other on how to sort of do this necessary tightening. To, uh, the second thing is that the U.S. could uh, actively try to sort of weaken the dollar a little bit. And that should be done, again, coordination with the other major banks, central banks. Then you have to you have different institutions for different purposes. Uh, the IMF, particularly in the World Bank, can provide more funds, but at the same time give up uh, on this sort of uh, insistence on austerity. Right. I mean, they, they have they already have understood that that's not their way to go. But the point is that. There is only a limited amount that that helps. That actually makes things worse a lot of times. And then you have uh, the G20 again, which has been really uh, quite ineffective. And the question is, how can you make it more effective? They are the ones who uh, have agreed on things like uh, the distressed debtors fund, basically. Uh, you could. You can extend the moratoria on on uh, on debt debt service for for a number of countries. So really, uh, you go back to this uh, coordinated approach. Uh, on the other hand, I think that it'd be very hard to coordinate anything with the with the uh, with the private sector. Uh, now, in terms of uh, Understanding the risks and analyzing the risks, I think that uh, what we really need to update our framework, and uh, because we are dealing, uh, I mean, the lesson of the past few years has been that we have these shocks that come out of nowhere, and uh, they were totally unexpected and had a massive impact. Uh -huh. I mean, we haven't had anything like that since World War II, uh -huh. basically. I mean, you know, <clears throat> first COVID and then the war in Ukraine. Right. Uh, uh, if anybody had told you uh, something like that would happen five years ago, you would laugh them off. I, I would have thought it was unbelievable. <laughs> Fantastical. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And now you're saying, you know, maybe the uh, Medvedev is saying, well, maybe we'll drop a couple of nuclear bombs on All right. Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> we have them. Why, don't, why not use them? Well, geopolitics has made everything that, that we try to do as economic forecasters so difficult because all of our assumptions can be blown up, literally. That's right. That's at, right. At any time. Yeah. I mean, I've always said that uh, the best preparation for analyzing country risk is history. You know, one thing that's been talked about, I wanted to get your opinion on, which, is, which has happened throughout human financial history, which is a debt jubilee. Could there be something, would that be a good idea to just get everybody to start fresh again? We t we began talking about bankruptcy and so forth, but what about um, a kind of restructuring like that? It, would that be, is there a moral hazard attached to that that makes it impractical? Well, we had that uh, twice, I think. Once we had that with the Brady bots. Right. Where, where basically... Uh, 
eventually, after 55 restructurings of the debt, people realized that uh, they can't pay back. They won't be paid back. The debt won't pay back. So they made these bonds, which are structured in a very clever way, where uh, they were they were uh, basically backed by U.S. treasuries, and they gave a 30% or 50% uh, discount to uh, to the countries. But that was a very specific uh, instrument designed for sovereign debt. Not for private debt. No, not for private debt. The second thing was, following in the 1990s, when I was at a bank and we were a member of the IIF, there was a lot of discussion of creating a mechanism within the banking system where you would basically uh, forgive debts. And then we had we also had some debt forgiveness for the poorest countries. That would not be very costly. It's uh, not a significant balance sheet item, is what no. you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, but now we got one complication. If the West and the Japanese basically forgive the debts of poor countries, they will have money. To pay the Chinese. To pay the Chinese. <laughs> exactly. And so the Chinese will encourage you, but say, well, we're not going to do it. So we're back to the beginning. <laughs> and the Chinese have been shown they're tough customers. They say, well, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't pay us, you've got, you have a nice port here or a nice airport. Uh, you know, maybe you want, uh, you, right. maybe you'll hand, uh, hand it out. It was like, you know, go back to Iran in the 19th century, the Qajar kings were always borrowing from the West. And they basically uh, gave as securities pretty much every source of income they had, banks and uh, customs and everything. Or the, Turk, the Ottomans are the same thing. They basically had to uh, put in uh, every asset they have uh, at the disposal of the of the banks and the Western powers. Well, we'll see. Maybe we're back to back to that. And did those debts ever get paid? Then, through <laughs> 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 that, I imagine not all of them. But I think that's just got to be something that will it has to be considered and maybe negotiated because right. I don't see a way out of it because. You know, it's just like somebody with a credit card paying a high interest rate. They're never able to pay it back. They're never able to do more productive things. So. Yeah, I think in the short term, we have to deal with uh, not just the debt crisis in uh, low-income countries, but also with the humanitarian aspect of that. I mean, you really are in a situation where uh, you don't want people to starve, to not be able to have access to medicine and so on and so forth. In the medium term, you have to look at a better way of uh, of dealing with this with the inter- inter- uh, this uh, debt issue, and uh, it worked fine for uh, a couple of decades for the emerging markets, uh, where they had access to abundant credit and so on, and they they really modernized. But um, in the longer term, they might be you might want to look at different models of financing. And also, uh, you want to reduce the great, I would say, imbalances in the in the global financial system. And then, as an analyst, you really want to see to focus really on uh, discontinuities and the impact of shocks. So, uh, no matter how much resilience you have, at some point in time, a shock could be great enough to uh, push you off the cliff. 
So um, my last question, more general philosophical question, is that do you think when the U.S. under Nixon left the gold standard that and basically all of these central banks became fiat-based um, central banks, do you think that that has contributed to these multiple crises that we've had or we would have had them anyway if we had stayed uh, on a gold standard? Well, I mean, uh, goes back to the image of the tail wagging the dog. Basically, if you if you help, help hold the tail and then let it move, the dog would eventually jump up and down, and you have even even more uncertainty. So, uh, in any uh, that actually gave some flexibility. I mean, right. uh, look at the Italians. The Italians would they, they have been better off if they had not joined the euro? Probably a hundred percent, they would have. Yeah, and exactly. that might happen sooner than we. Well, think. I mean, but it's too. It's I mean, they lost twenty years, but I mean, you know, mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. That that might be so. Well, the future of central banks maybe is a topic of another discussion that we can have. Too, Absolutely, but Kareem. Thank you so much for for joining me today. This was a great discussion, on very serious subjects. And how can people follow you in your work? And I know you're on EconView, and uh, you have work there. But um, how can people uh, read more about what you have to say? Well, I think that you know, uh, EconView is one way. To start with, um, for the past my past efforts, I mean, they can always contact me. But I hope that you know I'll be able to uh, contribute more on on EconView and continue this discussion. Wonderful. And uh, and I hope that you know that uh, our your viewers and your readers uh, will have enough interest in it to uh, contact me directly, and then we can we can talk about that too with them. We'll ha- be happy to put them in contact with you. I think risk management is an enormous subject right now, uh, especially for the corporate sector. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. We I learned a lot talking. As I guess you're a professor, so that's not surprising. <laughs> but I really learned a lot um, during our discussion. Thank you again. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I think, uh, as as I told you, it's something which is at the heart of my interest. And um, whether I'm retired, semi-retired or working, uh, I always think about these things. I think we love what we do and the opportunity we have to think about these questions. We're very lucky to be able to do that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Kareem. And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.